this is a love story about two men and my journey from grief and out of it. This is Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their true stories of personal daring. Then we discuss writing and life. I'm your host, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Can you recall the last letter you wrote? The kind where you pull out a pen, go searching for the right kind of paper, sit down, write it in your own hand? Not that recently, I bet. I wonder how often the post office even delivers handwritten letters to people's mailboxes. It's got to be just a fraction of a percent of all the mail they deliver. Maybe that's because a lot of the letters we sit down to write never even get delivered. Like the ones we're going to talk about today, written by Margaret Mandel to her husband, Herb, after he died. Margaret's book got me thinking about letters and how they become these little time machines zooming us back into a tiny window on the past. One time I was visiting a very dear friend of mine and she pulled out a stack of letters that she has saved from her early 20s when that was one of the main ways we communicated with each other was writing notes, sharing our little blips of our daily lives. And it made me wonder, do I have any letters from her? I might have one tucked away somewhere. I'm not sure. But one that I did come across recently when I was digging through some box of ephemera was a rejection letter. When I saw it, I was like, wow, what a blast from the past. I remembered that I had come up with what I thought was a brilliant little radio jingle about Table Talk Pies, which is the company where my dad worked as an accountant. I don't have the lyrics that I had come up with, but I know I had set it to the tune of High Hopes, but the chorus went, I've got Table Talk Pies. I've got Table Talk Pies. I thought it was brilliant. How would they not love it? And finding it was doubly funny, too, because I actually went on to write radio spots for my job. So that was kind of funny. So I had written up my idea, along with the lyrics, gave it to my dad to get it to whomever might be the person in charge of making radio spots at his company, as if they did all those things. I felt Like I waited for a really long time for a response, but the letter tells otherwise. It is dated October 3rd, 1979. Dear Miss Sweet, This is in response to your correspondence of September 27th, 1979, regarding a proposed commercial for tabletop pies. Please be advised that we currently have no plans to advertise tabletop pies on the radio, 
The basic reason for this is the inability of the medium to allow us to show our new package graphics and depict to the customer the appetite appeal of our delicious pies and the taste satisfaction that one gets from consumption of said pies. All, and here they have a typo on the letter, all our, I think it's supposed to be all of our, but it says all our advertising creative development is handled through James Anderson Advertising of New Canaan, Connecticut, should you wish to mail your proposed commercial tune. Thank you for your interest in Table Talk Pies. Sincerely, James L. Black, Director of Marketing. And he signed it. Right now, the letter has just been sitting on my desk, but I probably should do something special with it. I'm not sure exactly if it warrants framing, but it's my first rejection letter. Today, though, a conversation with Margaret Mandel, who talks about different kinds of letters she has written, including the ones that ended up launching her on a path to her debut memoir coming out this spring called And Always One More Time. There is so much to get to today, so let's jump right in to this conversation with Margaret Mandel. Your pub date is coming up. We'll say that right off the bat, March 12th. So if you happen to be listening to this before March 12th, you can do a pre-order. If this is after March 12th, you can go get the book immediately. And if it's after some other date, you might even be able to go get the audiobook right away, but that's to be determined. But with all this excitement coming up, tell me about your pre-pub date stuff going on, what's happening right now. Oh, this is a whole new world, having never done this before, but it's been loads of fun. I have been working for several months to take some of the chapters out of my book and reframe them for online publications. And I now have six um, publications out there, uh, which you can link to off of my professional website, margaretsmandel.com, if you're just interested in a little foretaste of the book. They're not exactly the same because one of the big takeaways for me is when you write for a magazine, you are writing a standalone piece, not part of a book. Mm. And so I've had to learn how to revise and edit and reframe my stories for a particular publication. And that's been a whole education, but a a fascinating and enjoyable one. It's a different kind of writing. Exactly, Magazine writing is different than book writing. Right, right. A whole other thing. And the last time you were on, we talked a little bit about your writing background, but maybe give us a refresher about how this book came to be and just a little bit of what it's about. Sure. It started as a thousand love letters to my recently dearly departed husband who died eight years ago, Um, and I began a practice of writing him a letter every day for four years, longhand, pilot pens, filling journals, never planning on sharing them with anyone, just an intimate way to work through missing him, grieving for him, and wanting to keep him close mm-hmm. through the letters. Yeah. But I do have kind of a lifelong 
habit of writing letters. So this wasn't the first time. That was going to be my question. Like, what's the letter thing? Tell me. Uh, I've been writing letters all my life. It was, you know, there are a lot of, believe it or not, letter writers out there in the world. I'm one of them. <laughs> you too. I am too. I <laughs> Well, you know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's a wonderful way to connect. Yeah. And get your thoughts out there and share them. Yeah. What kind of letters do you remember early on? Um, it's funny because when I finally did get into publishing my manuscript, one of the first thing I had to do was create a professional website and tell my writing story. And the title of my little story is Becoming a Writer One Letter at a Time. And it did start in childhood. It was one of the ways I dealt with separation anxiety when I went away to summer camp. I just uh, wrote to my parents. Yeah. You know, I was homesick. I missed my parents. I was 12. Yeah. I was in this totally remote area of the state of Maine. I mean, who goes oh. there? <laughs> Only who goes to Maine? Some oh, very excuse in, me. Very interesting. People. I forgot who I was talking to. I know. Very, I I remember that you saying that you uh you did come to me. Whereabouts in Maine? May I inquire? Yeah, it was kind of near the Sebago Lakes oh, okay. and um, yeah. that yeah. that area where a lot of summer camps were. Yeah, camps on lakes. You know. Near, yeah, there's a lot of know, them. Yeah, but Sebago Lake lakes. is yeah, it's a biggie. So definitely, that was a biggie. Um, I was a little further south from there mm-hmm. on a tiny little lake called Crystal Lake, but the bigger lake nearby was called Long Lake, and it was in. Bridgeton, Maine. Yep. So we were about maybe 15 minutes from Bridgeton. Yeah. In a tiny little town called Harrison, Maine. I was sent there and I didn't ask to go there. Mm. My parents wanted me out of the house for eight weeks. (laughs) Oh my God. So I got back at them by writing letters. That's good. Every day, what I had for breakfast, what I had for lunch. Wow. Yeah. Did you think of it as revenge or like no. okay i'm not there no. i'm gonna tell you but or were you homesick were you really i was homesick no yeah. I, I i loved them and missed them and i wanted to just tell them it was kind of like don't forget me Here, mm-hmm. here's what i did today <laughs> and funny you know fast forward 60 years later and i'm still doing that with my dead husband don't forget me i yeah. won't forget you yeah. here's what i did today yeah i totally get that when you write a letter to someone You're with them. You're having a conversation with them. Yes. And it's so personal and it's so, I don't know if I said this before, but what I also love about it, just thinking about writing in general, is one of the questions that we often are told to think about is, who is your audience? Like, who are you writing to? When you write a letter, that is a very easy answer. It's cut and dried. There's perhaps a language between you and the person. There's a background. There's a commonality. So there's kind of not necessarily reason for backstory, but there might be a whole bunch of reason for giving backstory of something that they're not there participating in with you. So summer camp, which I will also confess, I was sent to summer camp. I think it was like a week or two weeks. It felt like forever. So eight weeks, I think I would have. Well, I don't know. I would hope that after eight weeks, I would have settled in. But I think I was gone. It was short enough and long enough that I pretty much cried every day because I was a homesick kind of kid. 
So I think I probably did write letters, but I don't know about you, but I don't have, well, obviously you don't have the letters that you sent to people. Were those in boxes somewhere or anything? Do you? Well, my second big letter writing time was in the early 1970s when I had just met my future husband in college and he went off to medical school. I went to graduate school. This is Herb. So we. This is Herb. Right. This is the one. Yeah. Whom I married and then right. um, who died 45 years later. And I again picked up where I left off writing letters. But one summer when he was already a medical student, I was already in graduate school, I won a fellowship to go to France and study there for the summer. Oh. Which involved my leaving. Yeah him and flying to Europe where I'd never been yeah. by myself, yeah. living with a family I'd never met. So again, it was kind of like the summer camp experience where I'm just plopped down in this unknown place mm -hmm. and experience. And once again, the way I handled, you know, any anxiety or separation worries was to write these letters. So I wrote very long letters mm -hmm. to Herb the whole summer that I was in France, and he did keep them. Mm -hmm. And I eventually threw them away. Well, well, that's <laughs> and that's what we do. I read them. I yeah. reread them, and then I yeah. threw them away. Yeah, yeah. I've had letters. I read them, and then eventually throw them away, or you move, and they go in some box, and then you go, I can't keep carrying these boxes, and you know. So, what happened next in your? young adult self. I know that a lot of people end up using writing in their professional world somehow. And I think that you did that a little bit, but was, was writing an aspiration or even um, like, did you keep a lot of journals? Well, I did do diaries mm. as a child. I had several. Yeah. And those I kept actually, cause they're hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> they're just so funny uh, because they just totally map my psychosexual development over time mm. yes <laughs> um yeah not quite like Anne Frank but close yeah yeah but I did use this writing a lot in my work particularly in my 20-year stint as a director of admission in a Philadelphia prep school private school where I had to write acceptance and rejection letters a lot of them. A whole other kind of letter. All the time. Yeah. It became an art form for mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And to this day, I will run into people whose children I accepted into the school like 30 years ago, and they will say, I still have your acceptance letter. That's really something. In my scrapbook. Oh, because that's such a meaningful one. And of course, the other ones, sometimes people keep rejection ones too, because they can be very meaningful if you get if you get the kind of rejection letter that's like, you know, this was so close, but it just wasn't quite the right. You know, like those can also be meaningful, I think. And kind. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And mine were very kind. I am sure. Yeah. It seems like you had had enough empathy and life experience to, to do that well. So... You and Herb had a family together. You had two children, have two children. We do. Lydia and Dan. 
Dan and Correct. Lydia? Dan first. Dan first. Then Lydia. Then Lydia. Mm-hmm. Very good. And so these are characters in your book. I know I couldn't remember who was older. And so these are characters in your book. And tell me about, so you had these letters that you had written to Herb after he died. Then you had a book. What was what was that process? How did that how did that happen? Yeah. It happened because one day in a writing class I read one of my letters aloud to a group of strangers. These private letters that I was never going to share with anybody because they were very raw and personal. But I read one and it was a letter in which I was especially vulnerable. It was uh, written in December, sort of the darkest month of the year, and I was feeling very dark. It was 11 months after Herbert died, and I was getting ready for that first year anniversary, which is a big deal, because you basically go back and re-experience everything on the anniversary. So I'm reading this letter in the class, and I notice you could hear a pin drop, and some people were kind of teared up or crying. And I realized in that moment that there was something in the letter that touched, touched their hearts. And after class, my uh, instructor approached me and said, you know, this is a love story. This has to be a book. And I just looked at her like she was from outer space. I mean, the B word book never entered my wildest imagination as something that I would do. I did not aspire to write a book. Yeah, yeah. And having that suggested at that exact time must have felt even a little more surreal or unsettling or something, I would think. Yeah. Exactly. I couldn't process yeah. Really, what right. she said. But I filed it away in the Rolodex of my brain yeah. for for later. And later happened. Yeah. And you kept writing letters, obviously, because you were writing them for a very long Oh, time. I just yeah. kept, oh, I, I, after several years, I imagined I just couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine a day not starting with a letter. It had become that much a part of my life and yeah. How I saw myself. What was it doing for you at that point? Like at, at the point where you were like, I I can't, I won't stop doing it. Oh, because that is such an awesome question, Michelle. You're so good. Thank you. Really. Um, exactly. What the letters were doing is it became a way for me to solve problems Mm. figure out thorny relationships in my life and issues and things were happening. I mean, life just keeps happening. And I was like everybody else. I was facing my daily challenges and I was working them out in the writing. Yeah. But you didn't know you were doing that. You didn't intend to do that. It wasn't intentional. It's just what happened. It's just what happened. But that became very important to you know my my sanity my happiness my 
in knowing who I was and my place in the world yeah. and what I should be doing mm-hmm. and the big decisions. There were lots of big decisions I had to make after Herb died. Yeah. What do I do? Where do I live? Do I start a new career? Do I yeah. find another guy? I mean, all of these, yeah. do I sell the house? All right. Where do I go? Lots of, you know, all of these really big questions that every widow has to face or even person. Right. Right. And so that was all being dealt with and thought about and written about in the letters. Do you think that, I mean, obviously it evolved to something, as you said, that you had to do or you wanted to do. Did you find that through writing to him that he that you could maybe channel his responses or what he would have thought or what he might have advised because absolutely yeah absolutely um i i often quoted him back to himself mm. remember when you said this well thank you <laughs> yeah. that that really applies to the situation right, right here right now right. thanks for saying it right right because he was very wise very very yeah. wise yeah, so I was quoting him to himself. Right. Did he say anything new to you ever? Oh, that's so great. So great. Something new. Well, he was dead. Right. So I'm not sure how much opportunity he had after that to say anything new, but he had given me a lifetime yeah. of wonderful right. ideas to yeah. live by. But I guess maybe my... I'll try and phrase that a different way. Like, Yeah, you, what are you thinking when you say that? You, Anything new? Do you feel like through the letter writing, you were able to obtain some kind of insight that you might not have had if not for actually doing the physical process of writing it? Which is to say, in your daily life, you could certainly think what he would have said or the things that he had said in the past or you often told me this but did you feel like that sort of almost by you donning his thinking cap in the process of writing the letter that something would have occurred to you in a new way that you might not have otherwise yes and it often happened herb was always right about everything (laughs) yes we hear about that in the book And you'll hear about that in the book. He just was. And I've fought tooth and nail against some of his assertions. No, no, couldn't possibly. Nope, you're wrong. Well, it turns out he was right. And over the course of our marriage, when we had a tiff or an altercation about something, um, when one of us was, was angry and we were arguing, there was a moment when he said to me, you need to stop bullying me. You're bullying me right now. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know I was. I didn't think I was. I didn't realize I was. But I remembered him saying that. And then many years you know, after he died, and I'm still writing, and I am interrogating myself and how I am in the world, I had an epiphany that in a situation, I had become a bully to someone. Mm. And that's when I remembered his pointing it out to me many years ago in one, in one of our arguments, that that was one of the ways that I, I would fight 
mm. is I, I would bully mm. verbally, mm-hmm. verbally. Yeah. You know, I would say things right. that I that I thought could just shut the other person down. And, you know, bullies can do that. And maybe I did it out of self-defense, but it was definitely a strategy that I used mm-hmm. that I wasn't aware of. And and I didn't like hearing it because that sounded awful. I mean, who wants to be bullied? Right. But he did tell me. Yeah. And he made me aware of it. But it wasn't until years later that I confronted that in myself again. Mm-hmm. And it was so helpful because the minute I named it, I was able to not do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You have to be aware in order to change. So that was a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And so the writing does, it's like a little, I'm picturing almost like a cave. It's a, it's a mystical space that we go into when we decide to put down, as you say, letter by letter, even what we're thinking and what we want to say to someone and that we can think about them in a different way. Yeah. Let's get ready to hear a little bit. Do you want to get us ready for... um... I'd be happy to, but I think it's really important for me to just fill in one little blank here, which is how I got from these letters, which were basically a free-flowing free associating right stream of consciousness i know i did i did kind of skip over the writing part but the reason i um, i'm just filling in is because what i'm about to read isn't a letter it's a story yes and so what i had to then spend once the decision was made to go from these private letters that are never going anywhere to somehow creating a book is i had to rewrite the story as creative nonfiction, as memoir, which was no longer diary, commentary, analysis, and letters. It was story. I had to learn how to how to turn my letters into a story. So what you will hear is the first chapter in a 21-chapter story. Right. Exactly. What was your reaction to having to do that? Did you find it a creative challenge? Were you excited? Or was it, how do I take these things that already exist? I mean, I know that they were based on the letters. And I guess I'm wondering how much that became an anchor versus a foundation, if that's even a distinction to be made. It became graduate school and creative nonfiction. Right. Right. It, it was that rigorous. Yeah. And, and as you say, a creative challenge that I embraced, but had no idea how hard it was going to be, what a different kind of writing I was learning how to do, turning a letter into scenes, dialogue, and story is crafting a whole new animal. Yep. A whole new kind, kind of literature. And I had to learn how to do that. And I learned by reading lots of other memoirs. Mm -hmm. And I learned through practice, 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 revision, revision, revision with coaches. Yes, yes, exactly. And it was absolutely like graduate school. Yeah, It was graduate school. And you had some very good teachers, if you want to give a tip of the hat to. Yes. I had two extraordinary writing coaches. The first one was Jennifer Shelter, who is 
a wonderful memoir writing teacher, among other things, and she was the one in whose class I read my letter. She was the one who saw the potential for a book here and told me. And the second coach I had was an extraordinary both teacher and prolific writer of memoir, Beth Kephart, who was actually introduced to me by Jennifer because Jennifer had me read her work. Um, And I was so fortunate then to have Beth Kephart as a writing coach, mentor, teacher for another almost two years. Yeah. I was going to say, what was the time frame? A couple years with Jennifer? Two years with Jennifer, two years with Beth, or a little little less. But that's what it took. Yeah. Is there a number of revisions that you went through? I mean, do you know the number? I know that the answer is also yes, but. Yeah. um, Fabulous question. I don't know. David Sedaris says his minimum number of revisions is 16. Wow. You know, he won't publish anything until it's been through at least 16 revisions. Uh-huh. I feel like I was pretty close yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I can only imagine that you kind of lose track after a while, but maybe not. Maybe they become sort of more and more fine-tuned along the way would also be my guess. The different kinds of revisions, too, obviously. Um, right. You know, they're small revisions, and then they're total rewrites. Yeah. <laughs> like, tear it up and start over. Rewrites. Yeah. 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 How many of those did you have to do? Several. Wow. That that wow. that was hard. Yeah. That was hard, but that's where I learned the most. Yeah. You know, why what I had written wasn't gonna cut it. Yeah. And then what I needed to do it's instead. It's painful. It's painful. Yeah. Yeah. It's always painful to tear up your work. Yeah. Yeah. I sigh. Is I <laughs> think about that. Um, I will set up a little bit what I know, and you can obviously chime in or correct me, but the prologue of this memoir is essentially letters to Herb in his final days, weeks, days. So that's a really tough place to start and a brilliant way to get us in to the story, which is, and then what happened. So after those letters, which are, again, I mean, incredibly vulnerable, tender, raw, beautiful, this is actually the chapter you're going to read is the first chapter of the book. And do you want to set us up from there with what is called a detour around my belly button? Yeah. One of the most important lessons I learned early on from my first writing coach, Jennifer, who is also a yoga teacher, she was constantly telling me to stay in my body. Mm. Interesting. So I guess it's no accident that the first chapter of the book, which is about my physical brokenness in the wake of Herb's death and becoming a widow. And something happened to me physically. And the book starts with that. 
and how I dealt with it, how I responded to it, how I made sense of what was happening in my body. And so it's the story of what happened after Herb was no longer around and I was left to deal with it all by myself. And he was a physician. Yeah. And I really I really could have used him. Yeah. Yes. In that day. Yes, indeed. And he wasn't there and I had to deal with it. As every widow does. I hold my heart as I hear you say that. So whenever you are ready. A detour around my belly button. The first anniversary of Herb's death looms as well as memories of our final weeks together, how we scrambled each day through the maze of Temple University Hospital as he underwent invasive procedures to determine his eligibility for a lung transplant. Stalwart, he was uncomplaining, fasting, drinking chalky dyes, cardiac catheterization, endless blood draws, he would die before he became eligible. I am walking around the Michener Museum in Doylestown with a friend as a nagging pain grows in my belly. When we leave to head to a chic French restaurant, I barely notice the colorful Christmas lights chasing away the December gloom as the pain worsens. At the restaurant, I order sea bass, broccoli rob, and smashed garlic potatoes, which I will see again four hours later in an emesis basin as I lie on a gurney writhing in pain at the Abington Hospital ER. How I manage to drive myself home all the way from Doylestown on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, I do not know. How I finally call the ambulance from my bedroom at home while I still can speak, I do not know. How I remember to grab my phone and charger and keys and insurance cards as I collapse on the stretcher outside my kitchen door, I do not know. Here's what I do know. I just saved my own life without my doctor husband around to look after me. So this is what the inside of an ambulance looks like. I am shivering, teeth chattering. At the ER, my gurney rushes through the same threshold I watched Herb cross for the last time. I answer the same questions over and over. The pain started at 4 p.m. I had dinner at 6 p.m. It is nearly midnight. When the male nurse asks, what did you eat? I projectile vomit the entire dinner, undigested, into a basin. Pausing to notice the bright green color of the broccoli rob, I reply, here it is. He is not amused. After x-rays, a CT scan requiring ingestion of 32 ounces of dye and more vomiting up the dye flecked with broccoli rob, I am rushed to the OR, morphine coursing through my veins. Bring her up here immediately, the surgeon barks into the phone. Sequel volvulus, he tells me upon arrival. Your twisted bowel 
is about to burst, and if it does, there will be sepsis and likely death. No, I think. My children cannot be orphaned twice in one year. At 2 a.m., I sign the consent form as the surgeon, the cheerful Dr. Ryan Shaddis, leans over my gurney. I have just agreed to a possible colostomy. Do you have any idea what time it is? I ask him, punch drunk on the morphine. It's the middle of the night. That's why they pay me the big bucks, Shaddis replies affably. Anesthesiologists chuckle. I hoist my distended body from the gurney onto the cold, hard metal operating table, surprised by how narrow it is, and think I could fall off either side. I am shivering hard, naked. A nurse puts socks on my feet. Everyone is wearing shower caps. The lights are blinding. I awaken two hours later in recovery, minus two feet of bowel, with a train track of fourteen staples running from above my navel, around my belly button like a detour, all the way down to my pubic hair, which has been shaved. There is a nasogastric tube up my nose, running down my throat and into my stomach, pumping bile continuously into a bag hanging beside me. A catheter is in my bladder with its very own bag. I am retching from the anesthesia, which tugs on the staples. The dry heaving will last for three days, and I will beg for water, beg for the tube down my throat to be removed. Can't risk it, they would say. Your intestines are in shock. You need to get up and walk around. Help your body expel the anesthesia. Walk around? I am ruined, I think, the next morning in the hospital bathroom as, dragging my IV pole, I lift my hospital gown and look in the mirror at my emaciated torso, ribs protruding in the harsh fluorescent lights, and at the foot-long gash in my bloody stapled abdomen. I had already decided when Herb died that no one would ever want this sixty-something leftover body again. Now I am certain. Suddenly, a cascade of bloody shit erupts from my colon onto the bathroom floor. I squat to wipe it up. Strong yoga legs. No way I'm leaving this for a nurse to clean up. Mom would be proud. Later that day, I wonder aloud to my son Dan on the phone. How did my surgeon, Ryan Shaddis, even know what to do. How many people had to die of a twisted bowel before the right hemicolectomy was perfected? To which Dan, ever the scientist, replies, We all stand on the shoulders of giants. Back home, after the surgery, I am too weak from blood loss to stand at the stove. So, Cousin Ellen comes to cook for me, arriving with a cooler full of beef bone broth, beets, pastured eggs, salmon roe, leafy greens, and other iron-rich foods from her farm. Oh, my God, she gasps one night in the middle of dinner. In ancient Chinese medicine, the colon 
is the organ of grief and letting go. We put down our forks and let it sink in. I imagine my colon twisting and writhing as the first anniversary of Herb's death approaches. And lungs are the seat of sadness, I say, after a few moments, remembering Herb weeping inconsolably for the untimely deaths of his older brother and younger sister, each from stage four cancer shortly before his poor lungs turned to Velcro. For us both, and maybe for everyone, the issue was in the tissue. Really intense, visceral writing. We're going to skip ahead a little bit to a letter that you have for Herb, which is after your daughter's wedding. Can you just set us up a tiny bit for that before you go into it? How far are we chronologically from the twisted bowel? I'm so sorry about that, too, can I just say. Oh, thank you. Where were you when I needed you? Hmm. <laughs> so the um, opening chapter, the, the, the book follows a pretty straight arrow of chronology pretty easy to move from the prologue and Herb's diagnosis and death into the years that followed. So one year after Herb died, my daughter, Lydia, became engaged to her boyfriend, Jake. And 18 months after that was their wedding. And the book will cover the wedding in pretty meticulous detail. And right after the wedding, I wrote a letter to Herb telling him about it. And here we go. My dearest love, Herb, geese mate for life, and so did we. Three days ago, your Lydia became Mrs. Clark. It was excruciating to me that you weren't at the wedding. Wrong, cruel, unfair. How could there be so much beauty and agony under one big white tent? But oh, the beauty. Lydia and Jake organized their wedding down to the minutest detail. There were 25 Mandels there, all connected to you, remembering you. We raised our glasses to you. The moment of greatest beauty for me was yesterday, when a thank you note from Lydia arrived in the mail. It was for us, really. Thank you for being mommy and daddy, she wrote. I know that wasn't easy. Then she cut to the chase. When I worry about all the what-ifs with Jake, I know, after having watched you and dad, that all will be okay. I am ready to do the work to find the jewels in our marriage. We did that, baby. We showed our daughter how it is done. Years ago, you exhorted Lydia to find a man who would cherish her. She has, and now the work begins. What was our work, my love? 
of all the things you might have told me the night before you died, pulling me close, speaking in that hoarse whisper with such effort and urgency, you said, I just can't believe how far we've come together and how much you have grown. As if at that moment, I was finally graduating into adulthood in a sea of beeping monitors. I brought my lips as close to your feverish face as I dared and whispered back each word elongated by my breath on the exhale. We had so much. You smiled. It would be the last time I made you smile. What you may not have noticed, and nor did I. Dan was standing two feet away, listening intently. Later, he would say to me, That's what I want. I want that, to be able to say on my deathbed what Dad said to you, to feel that way about a woman. We did that, baby. We showed our son how it is done. As I write this, Dan is still searching for the one. He will find her. From the time Dan squirmed his way into our lives, followed by his sister, the two of them watched our every move as we fought over how to raise them. We squabbled like the geese in our backyard who made it and nested around the pond, flanked by our resident mallard ducks, a cacophony of quacking and honking, fluff and feather. Baby gee, Dan squealed with delight as he lumbered after the peeping downy yellow hatchlings following their mother around our yard. Within weeks, they were fully feathered, befouling our property along with their inseparable parents. We couldn't walk from our driveway to the front door without stepping in their gooey mess. Flying bags of shit, you called them. So beautiful in perfect flight formation, swooping, gliding, and landing on the water, until they denuded our grass and covered it in excrement. We loved, hated those backyard honkers who arrived each February 7th like clockwork, always the same couple, ready to nest. You tried shooing them away with a broom, but, hissing and squawking, the mother goose attacked you, grabbing the cuff of your pant leg in her beak as you tried to run away. You tried firing a pellet gun from the upstairs bathroom window to incentivize them to find someone else's pond. They honked and stayed put. One day, a big red fox came out of our woods and ate our mother goose and her warm, gestating eggs for dinner. You found her goose feathers under a stand of evergreens behind the split rail fence near her nest, you told me. You know all too well how her mate stayed for days tearing at our hearts as he honked forlornly, swimming back and forth, searching the edges of the pond. Here's what you don't know. After you died, I became that goose, gray and lifeless, disoriented, searching, alone in our house, 
For two years I wandered around looking for you, staring at the empty seat at the kitchen table, in the dining room, your favorite chair for watching TV, your side of the bed. An autumn romance has begun for me and John, eight years my senior, a burst of light and color just before the leaves turn to dust, becoming one with the earth. I have colors yet, baby, a vibrance I didn't know I still had, waiting to enter upon the scene before the harvest comes. Remember how at the beach on a cloudy day the ocean was gray and then sparkling blue when the sun came out? People do that for one another, evoke color with light. The wedding is behind me now. I slept the sleep of the dead last night. I dreamt you were back, alive and well, young and vibrant, sleeping in my guest room here at the plaza with John emerging from my bedroom and encountering you in the hallway. In the dream, I was paralyzed, torn. But you are gone. Tomorrow is Yom Kippur. When we attend Kol Nidre services tonight, John will wear your talus and yarmulke the first time in three years they are coming out of their bag next to the mothballs since you last wore them in October 2015. I don't know how you would feel about this. I can tell you I long for the closeness I once felt standing by your side all day at high holy day services, that blessed pause from our impossibly busy lives. The yarmulke which I carefully clipped to your thinning, curly, white comb-over, still smells like you. Tonight I will clip the yarmulke to John's curly white hair and lay your talus across his broad shoulders. He says he is honored to wear your sacred garments. He will breathe new life into them. We did the hard work, baby, while our children watched. Do you know what is really the hardest job I ever had to do? Not marriage. Hard. Not child-rearing. Harder. Not becoming an adult. Hardest. Not even having to be mommy and daddy at Lydia's wedding. It is letting you go. Thank you so much for that, Margaret. Just breathtaking. And um, I think that what really speaks to me in both of these two passages is the ability to encompass such divergent things in one, you know, one, one uh, hold with your arms together, you know, in one span of something that um there's pain and beauty and agony and humor and old love and new love and they are both present and real that dream of 
Herb and John encountering each other in the hallway. You know, I don't think one has to be a dream analyst to really um, see what was going on in your life there. I mean, you must have woken up from that and been like, ah, people can't see our faces, but uh, I'm like, <sighs> really intense. So beautiful writing beautiful reading and another thing I'll say that I I love about this book and that I love about your reading of this book is um such a spaciousness I don't even know exactly what I mean by that but I can picture being there I mean it's very vivid scene writing and you are absolutely vulnerable and clear about what you are going through yet there's so much space there for the reader to both i think identify and infuse one's own emotion in such a situation which is i think how we grow as humans by putting ourselves into other people's you know circumstances and experiences so um it's just really a a very broadening piece of work to absorb. So thank you for that too. I guess one question I'll ask is the present tense. You, you chose the present tense for the stories. Can you explain that choice or how that happened or when that happened? Well, you asked about the 16 revisions. Mm-hmm. Many, if not all, of my scenes and chapters were in one tense and then another tense. Mm. And then I can't tell you how many times I would write the whole thing in present tense and then I'd rewrite it in the past tense mm. and then I'd rewrite it in the present tense. Wow. Yeah. And would read it aloud to myself, which yeah. is something I, I learned to do. I made recordings of myself reading that aloud so I could then listen for how it landed, how it sounded. Yeah. You know, past tense is reportage. I'm reporting on something that already happened. Present tense is we're there. I'm there. The reader is there. It's happening in real time. Exactly. And um, and for that reason, the emotion is just so much more present, literally. Did you find that a trade-off was um, perspective? Like, did your past tense ones infuse kind of like what I thought then, what I think now sorts of observations? Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and you probably know because you've read the entire book, it's not all in present tense. It was a deliberate choice that certain scenes or right 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 were in present tense and certain were in in past tense and they were all very carefully considered deliberate choices mm. were they the right choices that is for the reader to decide can i even uh, just say i have read it and listened to it and it is so seamless like there are moments when i know we are looking back but it's but the feeling is absolutely present tense for whatever that's worth for you. That aliveness and immediacy is just 
to me, that is the the voice of the book. Well, as you know, memoir writing is an excavation of one's past. My book covers a period of time of the past eight years. Mm -hmm. It's not the story of my life. It's not my childhood. It's none of that. This is a love story about two men and my journey from grief and out of it. But you also know that there are flashbacks to my childhood. And, you know, I am five years old. I am seven years old. I am right. a teenager, whatever. And even in the flashbacks, I made a deliberate choice to stay in the present tense. There is one very traumatic scene in which I'm seven and I so I've sort of snuck almost into my parents' bedroom, hoping to hear them kissing late at night. You know, when I'm on the floor in my pajamas, I'm, I'm a little kid. And um, without giving too much away, I discover that not only do, do I not get the primal scene, which is what every child is hoping for, <laughs> um, <laughs> whether it's conscious or not, we all want that. What? What kind of we doctor want, was Herb again? We want to hear mommy and daddy yeah. doing it, even if we don't admit it. I was there for, I was on a mission. But, Love it. You know, <laughs> the joke was on me because yeah. instead of finding that, there was this horrible row between my parents and it scared the bejesus out of me because they were yeah. screaming at each other. And yeah. But I wrote, even though I'm actually, you know, my present age, Describing something that happened a very long time ago, I use the present tense because I'm actually back there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm there. Exactly. I'm seven. Yeah. I'm seven. And I'm writing about actually regression. Mm. And there's a child in each of us and we can be triggered into regression. That's what's happening in this chapter about the flashback to seven. And I actually became seven. Yeah in the chapter. So it had to be in the present tense. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, I feel like that's so hard and you do it so well. So again, many, many revisions have paid off. I'm sure each flip back and forth between past, present, past, present, like, you know, you just keep working it. It just, it's really good. It's really good. Thank you. The adulthood thing that you mention, you see and you show us personal development continuing through this time. And um, again, Herb's prescience, you are going to grow through. I mean, that's just flooring. It had to be maddening at times for him to be right about everything. <laughs> but what? I'll just ask you to say anything you might care to say about the whole becoming an adult thing, because I feel like that's another never-ending process. Indeed. And it certainly took me a lifetime to discover by experience and over time that every stage is a developmental stage, mm -hmm. including and especially the oldest stages of life. Yeah. We tend to think of development as something that happens in childhood and adolescence. And then boom, you're an adult and you're just kind of every, you know, everything flattens and there's no significant growth or change. And in fact, as one approaches 
one's own mortality and the mortality of others, that's probably one of the biggest catalysts for growth we are given in life. Mm -hmm. Wow. And the growth is actually exponential. Mm. And Herb and I, of course, came of age together as late adolescents. It was one of those marriages that started, you know, at the end of our teenage years and yeah. continued into our 60s. Right, right. Through all these, you know, through midlife, through raising a family. So we, we did the hard work of growing up together. Yeah. And then it all ended with his deathbed pronouncement that I can't believe how much we've grown together and how you in particular have grown, particularly during the final months of the terminal illness, where Herb and I had to negotiate the end of his life. Yeah. There was so much work to be done there to get to that place where we had no unfinished business. Yeah. By the time he died, there was so much work that we did to get to that point. Right, right. But then there was the work of the grieving widow mm-hmm. and how to go on. Yeah. And keep developing and evolving and renegotiating my very identity. Yeah. If you're not somebody's wife, who are you? Right. That was a big question. Exactly. And I'm glad that you bring that up because it's important for people to know that this is not just about grief and losing someone. It's also about growth and finding someone and how those things are all intertwined, how that continues as is seen in this dream scene in that chapter. So a lot of hope without shrinking from grief or the process of it are things that I think are huge. I love hearing you say about the developmental stages of who we are and who we become not ending because that's actually something to kind of go, oh. It's a surprise. Yeah, exactly. We're not expecting it. Right, right. It's a little little cherry on top. It's Well, it's actually a little bit of a relief. It's like, oh, good. You know, like I don't, I don't want to rust on laurels. Like what is, what are laurels anyways? I don't know. You know, I mean, we have these kind of things. It's like, no, I have a lot more that I am still thinking about all the time. And I really hope I continue to grow. And so that is just another really beautiful aspect. I I was asking because I couldn't remember what type of doctor was Herb? Was he a psychologist, psychiatrist? He he was a child psychiatrist and Uh psychoanalyst. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. you had all kinds of stuff at home with the (laughs) built-in built-in therapist or something. I don't know. I'm kind of imagining that, but like just so much wisdom, so much wisdom and developmental stuff I find compelling and fascinating too. So do you envision writing another memoir or another anything, another book? I absolutely envision writing more what form it will take and what it will be about remains to be seen, but it will happen. Excellent. Do you still write letters every day? I do not. Wow. 
I do not write handwritten letters in a journal. Right. But I correspond constantly with people. Yeah. Call them flash letters. Mm, I am definitely, I love, I have cards. I do send notes to people as often as I have people's addresses. I think there is nothing more personal and lovely than getting something handwritten in the mail from someone because it's a piece of them right there, right there. And handwriting has a personality. Yes, absolutely. What was most daring about writing this book for you? Handling the truth. Mm. What do you mean by that? (laughs) To quote the title of Beth Kephart's first textbook on memoir writing, Handling the Truth. Mm. Oh, okay. Thank you. I didn't catch that, but yeah. But I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek at all. I mean it. Yeah. Because memoir is truth-telling, and it's not possible without first confronting your truth. Mm-hmm. the shadow side of yourself, the child side of yourself that never grew up. Mm-hmm. And it just all, it all has to be honestly confronted with great kindness. Yeah. So it it is daring because it's raw and it's revelatory and you just have to look at your unvarnished self. Yeah. If you're not, you're not going to have much to send out to the world. Yeah. You have to, as one one writer said to me recently, you just open your veins and bleed out. That's what you do when you write memoir. But always with kindness towards yourself and towards the reader. Mm, that's so important. How did that come into play for you about certainly about yourself, but for the reader, what does that, what was that about? Um, You used the word empathy earlier in this conversation. So for me, I discovered from a Kirkus reviewer, actually, who wrote about the book that I write with tremendous empathy for myself and for all the other characters in the book. The other people that I write about, my children, not just Herb and John, but my children, my mother, important people in my life, I write empathetically about them, empathetically about myself, and I am discovering now that the book is out in the world and people are starting to read it. I had beta readers, you know, and some early readers, all of whom have reflected back to me that they were touched in ways by the story and the writing that was elevating for them. Mm. In other words, I gave them something important, something important to feel, to think about, maybe to get in touch with their own most empathetic, compassionate selves. Yeah. Hopefully I was modeling that in my, in my own writing. Is that daring? I don't know. But it was certainly, I realize in hindsight, the most important outcome I could hope for with the book. Mm. But the daring part was the self-disclosure, the complete unvarnished self-disclosure. Yeah. 
It's hard. It's really hard. It's so hard to do that gently. Um, just an observation that I think that the practice of doing that, as you said very early at the beginning of our conversation about you writing these letters with zero ideation that anyone would ever read them. I think that that must have been a huge leg up on having that kind of personal, unvarnished view of yourself and to do it with gentleness and kindness. Very true. Lots of practice. Practice. That word comes in a lot. I think of it in many um, terms. And the, the one other thing we haven't spent a lot of time talking about, but I think was probably another accompaniment with you to kindness was your, your yoga practice. So that's another significant part of this story is your becoming a yoga instructor. So that's just another tidbit for listeners and readers to look forward to, unless you want to say anything else about yoga. Yoga, I write in the book, not original to me, quoting my yoga textbook during my teacher training. Yoga is the practice of tolerating the consequence of being yourself. Mm, that's right. I remember that. What a quote. It's much more than just a an exercise, a physical yeah, exercise. Yeah. It's a deep spiritual reckoning. Yeah. And a good yeah, one. Yeah. And one that brings the body into it right there along with. Exactly. Underneath that big thick skull. <laughs> yeah. I love talking with you about this book. I'm so, um, I'm so happy to spend the time talking with you about it. Well, coming from you now, having um, spent a great deal of time in my words as my most amazing audiobook producer, uh, I take that as the highest compliment. Oh, thank you. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity, having been able to read today. And uh, I love that you asked me to read both a chapter and a letter just to help the reader gets and the listener get some sense of how I learned to acquire the, the subtle grace of tonal shift from story to letter and back. Mm, yes. That was a huge lesson for me in the process of taking the letters and turning them into a book. I learned so much. And the illustration that you asked for today, one letter, one chapter, hopefully is illustrative of that. I hope so too. I wanted I wanted people to be able to get a sense of the full range of what this book entails and what your experience entailed. So so pre-orders now available? Yes. Pre-orders are available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Um reaching out to bookstores and already have some readings and talks and book signings and appearances scheduled throughout the spring and summer. And I'm very, very serious doing as much as I can to 
bring this book into the world to those who would benefit. I think that there is a huge readership out there for this book. I will say that I think a lot of people would really enjoy it. So thank you for your words and for sharing them. I'm assuming you also might have a newsletter to sign up for at your website. Yes. Margaret S. Mandel, which is my name, dot com is my website. And anyone could enter, um, enter their name and email address And I will communicate with you and give you the latest news. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Margaret. It was a joy talking with you. Thank you, Michelle. And likewise. I really have been thinking about what Margaret said about how even in late life, there are important levels of our personal development to achieve. That is just incredibly heartening to me, and I am working on it. I will have to try and uh, go find some resources for that. In addition to the pre-order links for Margaret's book that we talked about, there are also links for some of her recent publications with Oldster and Brevity Blog, both great pieces. Oldster has some very fun pictures, so you should check those out. And of course, I will have a link for her website as well, margaretsmandel.com. Another website to check out is mine, where I would invite you to sign up for my newsletter. It's called The Redo, spelled like my last name, Rado, of course. It comes out just once a month. It is a space I reserve for further contemplations or questions I've had after each podcast episode. So I hope you might want to check that out. I also invite you to follow this podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on. Even better, maybe share it with someone who you think might be interested in it. I am super thankful for whatever sharing you might choose to do. I am also super thankful to my amazing musician husband, Phil Rado, for all the music I use on this podcast. And most of all, I am grateful to you for making it all the way to the end of yet another episode and for daring to listen. I'll catch you next time. And nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground